You're listening to an Al Mahdi Institute podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, so the topic that we've chosen for the, the Tafsir series is an analysis of Shaitan's strategy and psychology in the Quran. So I know that up until now, you've the Tafsir series so far have been Tafsir of uh, Surah Zumar, Tafsir Surah Waqi'ah, Tafsir Surah Hujurat, all of when all of which are amazing surahs to do, tafsir of, and to go through. Um, I chose a different approach to the tafsir um, because there's, you have what's known as tafsir tartibi in Islamic scholarship, which is where you look at a surah or you may study something chronologically. So even tafsir works that are ordered from Surah Fatiha all the way to Surah Nas and it goes through in a chronological way. But you also have what's called tafsir mawdu'i, which is um, a subject matter to tafsir. So even the arrangement, when you look at tafsir mawdu'i, it might be arranged in terms of tawheed, nubuwa, um, shaitan as a topic, um, uh, different practices, uh, hajj, the topic of khums, and things like that, where the the pertinent ayat or the relevant ayat are all within that subject and anything that overlaps. So it's not necessarily chronologically. So I thought, that now this is a topic that's fa that fascinates me, um, the topic of shaitan. Um, and I thought that it'd be good to do a thematic tafsir. Um, so when you look at the topic in scholarship, it's colossal. It's a massive topic, the topic of shaitan. Um, because it borders on many, many things um, that are discussed in theology, in, uh, in psychology. Um, and so while, let's just start this. So the important, there's very important preliminary and peripheral discussions that we have to go into first before we can actually examine stra uh, shaitan's strategies. So today's session is all about giving you a background um, into shaitan and what peripheral discussions there are around around the topic. So you so when you when you look at the fasir, what they go into is theological discussions, for example, about the nature of shaitan. Okay, they go into philosophical discussions about good and evil, about free will and predestination. Right, all of that comes under the topic of shaitan, um, and. It's very easy, because of the breadth of the topic, to get carried away in the philosophical discussions as well. Um, so our primary concern, or at least my primary aim in this tafsir series, is to anchor the discussion somewhere, right? Um, and I think the best anchor is where the Qur'an is for the purpose of which it describes itself. So the Qur'an says it's huda lil muttaqeen, primarily before even you know, around these discussions and stuff, primarily it's a source of guidance for those who wish to guard themselves. So inshallah, the anchor has to be what's going to benefit us in our lives, right? So by, by um, researching into this and learning about shaitan strategies is so that we may apply and learn for our own benefit. So while today's session has peripheral discussions, right, it's not purely about that. So we're going to anchor it into that which will benefit our lives, inshallah. Um, so bear with me if there is a little bit of the philosophical bit coming in today. Also, um, 
there's lots of different methodologies by which the Quran is approached. So people in the past have taken the social methodology, for example, to look at the Quran as a social text and social um, lessons, or when they derive fiqh laws okay, from the Quran. Um, again, we're going to anchor our discussion very much on a linguistic study. So we're going to approach and extract shaitan strategies by looking very closely at the language. But don't worry if you don't know Arabic. Inshallah, from next week, I'll have handouts for you with the Arabic so you can, you're able to follow exactly what about the language explains that to us, right? So we'll be, we'll be looking at the language very closely. And we're also looking, using a methodology called Tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an. And that's a tool that many... Um, very notable scholars in the field, especially Allama Tabatabai in his Tafsir al-Mizan um, and other scholars, Ayatollah Jawadi Amuli, they rely on Tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an, which is basically where some parts of the Qur'an are used to interpret other parts, right? That the Qur'an has everything within it. So other Mufassirin use what's known as Tafsir bil-Ma'thur, where they use a hadith mainly. So whilst we may bring in some hadith, there's too many ahadith actually about shaitan and they can cloud the discussion as well because a lot of the ahadith that are in there have infiltrated from um, the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition into ours or there's a lot of kind of folkloric and mythical things from people's beliefs in the past that have infiltrated so we're going to really focus on just the Quran as much as we can and not bring in the ahadith if we can help it um, and yeah, so let's go in. So we've, we've covered these. So firstly, shaitan's names, okay? So they say, speak of the devil, but mention not his name. So he's referred to in the Islamic tradition by three different names predominantly, okay? So there's Azazil. Now the name Azazil hasn't been mentioned in the Quran. That's largely in Hadith but it's been mentioned enough for us to give it a little bit of weight. Um, and they say that the root of it comes from Azaza or Azza, in that he was somebody that was endeared to God. Many, many, many ahadith say that he was a worshipper, he loved God, he had a very high station in the heavens, and he was known to be very industrious, um, dedicated and renowned for his insight and learning. Okay. So, and these kind of, this, when, when they bring this up in hadith, they don't really dispute that um, in Islamic scholarship. So they don't really, nobody kind of turns around and say, oh no, it's impossible, he can't have been that good, right? So most people kind of accept from a hadith that he was generally a good guy. Um, and his name was Azazil, which could be someone who's endeared to God from the, from the root of it. The other name he's known as is Iblis. So Iblis, major lexicographers, when you look up in um, Arabic lexicons, some of them, or say majority of them, say it comes from the root balasa, okay? which means to despair or be sorrowful or to give up hope. And the word mublisin from that, from that Arabic root word um, comes up in the Quran in Surah number 6, Ayah 44, and it talks about people who are very proud of what they have, and then they lose everything, they despair. Okay? Um, 
or people who despair of rain ever falling on them, for example. Okay, so it's that kind of despair. So Iblis is used in the Quran in about in in mainly the story of his banishment from paradise. Okay, so a lot of lexicographers kind of make the make the link between this root balasa, which is to despair, and the fact that Shaitan was hopeless and despaired of God's mercy when he was banished. Some lexicographers say no, it doesn't come from a root word. It's a foreign word. It's just a proper noun, like Ibrahim. Ibrahim doesn't have an Arabic root. It's just a proper noun. And so they say, no, it's just a proper noun like Ibrahim or Idris, and it's more closely related to the Latin or Greek diabolos, right? Iblis, and you've got the same kind of roots, um, which would have been current at the time. Okay, so there's a little bit of discrepancy about the name Iblis. When it comes to Shaitan, again, it has a root, comes from Shatana, and it originates from the Hebrew, Shatan, which meant accuser or adversary. Um, so Arabic says that it comes from the root shatana, which means to be distant, to be astray or alienated. And you find that shaitan is mentioned about 50 times in the Quran or more, actually much more than that. Um, and especially in the story of him taking Adam and Hawa out of paradise. So he distanced them from paradise, but he also distanced himself even further. Okay, so someone who leads astray, someone who alienates is a shaitan. Um, and the word shaitan also refers in the Quran, in the plural it comes up, like shayateen, and it refers to any adversaries of man, so humans and jinn, um, any kind of devilish evil creatures that seduce man, tempt him, um, and things like that. So our focus is going to be those two stories, mainly. Um, the story of shaitan's banishment and the story of um, him seducing Nabi Adam. And in those two stories, Shaitan and Iblis refer to the same person. So all scholars are unanimous that Shaitan and Iblis are the same person. But you'll notice that Iblis is used in that context where he's banished, and Shaitan is used in the context where he's seducing Adam. Okay, so there's a different word used in each of them. And then the rest of the places where Shaitan is used has always got something to do with his involvement in man's spiritual life. So whenever he interferes in our life, the word shaitan is used. Okay? Um, then moving on, just to give you a little bit of background into shaitan in other traditions. And the reason why that's important to know is because when you look at Orientalist scholars' writing, People who don't believe, for example, that the Qur'an was divinely revealed, or they come, don't come from the same vantage point as us, that the Qur'an is the word of God, for example. This notion is there that Islam was influenced by Christian writings, or influenced by Jewish writings, and then kind of we took from that. Um, so it's important to make a little bit of a distinction so we know how the Qur'an differs. So in all three Abrahamic religions, so Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, um, shaitan features. And he's an entity that seduces humans into sin or falsehood. In Christianity, they either see him as a fallen angel or as a jinn. Okay? Um, so he possessed great piety, great beauty, and then he rebelled against God and he was banished. 
and he had temporary power in the world and in the land of demons. He's also known as the devil, and the book of Genesis, when it comes to creation of Adam, actually doesn't mention him. It mentions a serpent, but it doesn't mention the devil. In Judaism, it's interesting, very interesting, I didn't know this until I researched it, that shaitan is typically regarded as a metaphor um, for what they call yetzer hara, which is evil inclination. So, and it's an agent entirely subservient to God. Um, there's some passages in the Hebrew Bible that refer to shaitan, but without mentioning a name. But most Jews do not believe in the existence of such a supernatural, omnivalent figure. They don't believe that such, a, such an entity exists. Um, so they reject any belief in rebel or fall, fallen angels, um, and they just see evil as abstract. So the rabbinic, rabbinical Judaism or the rabbis usually interpret shaitan um, as referring to human adversaries, okay, human evil creatures, not with evil inclinations, but not an entity. Um, and there's, they have the Book of Job, for example, that generally identifies. Again, there's references to shaitan having seduced Prophet Ayub in that book, but again, they see it as metaphors for evil inclinations. Um, conservative and reformed Jews hold on to that as well. Um, and the only ones who actually see shaitan as an entity are the Orthodox Jews. So they do embrace like ancient teachings on shaitan um, and seek refuge from shaitan in their prayers, etc., just like us. But otherwise, no. There's an alternative tradition I've put here, the Sufi tradition. Now, this is very interesting because it seems that the Sufi tradition has drawn very much from mythical law. Um, and a hadith and visions that Sufi masters would have rather than anchoring the, their, their views strictly on the Quran. So there's a lot of influence from poetry, visions, fables, things like that in the Sufi, in the Sufi um, strands. Um, and there's about two or three different views that they adhere to, which are very, very interesting. Um, so there's one strand in Sufism, for example, that doesn't focus on whether he was an angel or whether he was a jinn, but on the fact that he reproduces in men's hearts and occupies every fiber of their being, runs through their veins. So they choose to focus on that aspect. And thus, man needs very strict training. He needs a guide, he needs a teacher, and he needs to gain control over his internal forces, there's a constant battle between God and his angels and shaitan and his offspring. Um, and they highlight his pride, his blindness, and all of that. So you see these kind of things, this kind of conflict reflected a lot in, for example, Rumi's poetry. Okay, So that's one strand of looking at things and what they focus on. There's another quite significant strand um, where they refuse to portray him in negative terms. Okay. So they view him as someone who is innocent, someone who is stuck between a rock and a hard place because they feel that God predetermined his fall. God knew he was going to rebel, and still God put him in that predicament by asking him to bow down. Okay? God knew his nature, knowing he would refuse, and that in refusing God's command, he was only acting as per God's will. Okay? Well, we can argue that for every single one of our commands. Um, but 
this, and then this plays out in the whole free will and predestination thing, right? So when you, when you look at shaitan in, in this particular strand of Sufism, this is where free will and predeterminism come in. And there's this never-ending tension um, between that that becomes a major theme, okay? There's yet another strand or another um, that's nurtured by a group of Sufis. So there was one main one called Al-Hallaj, um, historically. And again, they don't condemn him for his refusal to bow down before Adam. So what they do is they focus on, on something called the science of opposites and these conflicting spiritual realities. So they believe that his sin was merely born out of his love to God, that he loved Allah so much with such, with such intensity that he would rather sacrifice himself to eternal damnation, then bow before anyone other than God, right? So his, his sin was born purely out of his love that he didn't want to commit polytheism, right? Um, of course, there's, there's lots of rebuttals to that because Allah, if polytheism is the ultimate deed that cannot be forgiven, Allah would never command his angels to, it wasn't an act of polytheism, but we'll go into that. Um, and so they believe, they see him as a model of monotheism, right? He's this arch monotheist in their writings. Um, and Iblis accepts his destruction like a martyr, right? So he'd rather sacrifice himself and earn God's wrath and his curse um, and things like that. Um, they talk about Iblis's victim, you know, how humans have victimized him, right? Um, and the glory is in his martyrdom and all sorts of things like that. Okay, so that's it's, it's quite a major strand in Sufism um, that he's seen in a positive light. And there are other traditions that actually see shaitan in a positive light. The Yazidis are one of them. Okay, So Yazidis also have this notion that shaitan ultimately um, got Allah's mercy. And they don't refer to him as shaitan, they refer to him as Malak Ta'us, like angel peacock. Um, and there's, there's lots of different where there's certain Islamic influences that they have, but not when it comes to shaitan. Anyway, going back to shaitan's nature and origins, okay? Now, when it comes to shaitan's nature, this is again a question that takes up a lot of pages in tafsir works. Um, and a lot of discussion is, is given to this as to whether he was an angel or whether he was a jinn, okay? Now, it's only important insofar as we understand why he was being to ta taken to task, right? Why was Allah so harsh with him if he wasn't an angel? Because the command was given to the angels. So everywhere when in this story, when you look, the command, is, it says, وَإِذْ قَالَ رَبُّكَ لِلْمَلَائِكَةِ Okay, about seven times in the Quran, when your Lord said to the angels, They all prostrated except Iblis. So based on that, some people say he was an angel. Okay? And yet in verse number 50 of Surah 18, Allah says, Kana min al jinn. He was of the jinn, therefore he deviated from the command of his Lord. Okay, So there's these two 
things here that so many times Allah includes him among the angels and addresses him among the angels, and yet he says he was of the jinn. So there's a whole load of discussion around whether he was a jinn or an angel. And you've got just as many scholars saying he was a jinn and just as many saying he was an angel. Okay? Um, although the, the discussion is kind of... Uh, I guess it, it does lean towards him being a jinn. So there were people like... Um, so of the Shia scholars, you had um, some Shias and Mu'tazalis who said that he was a, uh, a jinn. Okay, Fakhraddin Razi said that, he attributed it to the Mu'tazalis. Um, majority of the Shias said that, Qummi said that, um, and then you had major tafsir, tafsir scholars like Zamakhshari who said he was a jinn, and you had others who said he was an angel. Okay, Tabari, Shaykh Tusi, Tabrisi said he was an angel. So we'll look at, we'll look at the arguments from both sides, um, because it's not something that we can completely ignore. Um, so, the, those who say that he was an angel, anybody, anybody would like to pipe in and, and say why, they think, why do you think people would argue that he was an angel? So, that's the main one. That's the main argument, is that he was included among the angels, right? Um, and that's why they say he couldn't have been taken to task because the command was to the angels and he didn't bow down. But then when the command came, mm. Satan, whether he was angel or not, he understood that it also referred to him. Yes. And that's why uh, he said he was not going to bow down and reason why he was not going to bow down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the main argument. The fact that the Quran says Allah addressed the Malaika. Okay? Um, so he so he's made from fire, right? He says he's made from fire, but in the so a hadith tell us that angels are made from light, right? But the Quran doesn't say that anywhere. Okay, so the Quran doesn't say the angels are made from light, and there's a hadith that say that they're actually made from the same thing in terms of jinn are created from the blaze of the fire. Angels are created from the light of the fire. And so in that respect, there and shayateen are created from the smoke of the fire. So in that respect, nar and nur are very, very similar. So they don't make a distinction as such. And they say, well, in that, that's how he was able to live among them because he was actually made of the same substance. Um, any other? So they say that that's negligible. He was actually an angel. Anything else? So, um, there's many scholars who say, for example, that he was of a different class of... So when Allah says, Kana min al-jinn, they say jinn doesn't refer to an inferior class of like demons or like um, inferior creatures. They were actually a class of angels, a tribe of angels called jinn. And they were the guardians of heaven, of Jannah, hence they were called jinn. Okay, so there were a tribe of angels who were in charge of looking after Jannah, and that's how Iblis had access there in the first place. So that's how they, they rebut that. That when Allah says, Kana min al jinn, they say, yes, he was of the jinn, but the jinn were a tribe of angels. Okay? Sorry, Brother Yusuf, can I say? Yes. 
no, no. Angels don't have free will. Shaitan had free will, right? So that's the other side of the argument. Um, the angels do not have free will, okay? Um, so when you when they say that the angels don't have free will, and it says that in the Quran that they don't act of their own accord; they only follow Allah's command. Um, and Shaitan acted of his own accord. So by nature, he was not angelic. Um, and what they, they refute that with, saying that it's not impossible to have an angel who sins, just like it's not impossible to have a man who's impeccable, right? Majority of men are sinful, right? But just like we don't discount that there can be sinless humans, it's not impossible to have an angel who sins. So that's one of their rebuttals. Unless, of course, Allah's made their nature that way, right? Allah's not made our nature to be sinless. Um, so that's one thing. Another argument um, that the jinn jin camp use is the fact that jinns have offspring. They beget, right? Whereas angels don't. Um, so they said because shaitan is narrated in the Quran to have offspring, right? Allah says you will have children, um, they say that um, he, he must be a jinn because angels cannot have children. Um, and again, they rebut that by saying, yes, but there could be species of angels that have offspring that we don't know about. Okay? Not offspring like that. We, again, there's only, there's only a hadith that suggests how their offspring are. So there's a lot of a hadith that say that they don't have offspring the way we do, but they lay eggs. Okay? Um, so that's why, you know, a hadith is, uh, there's, there's lots of spurious things in there too. Um, so the, the proponents of the fact, of, of the idea that he was a jinn, base it mainly on the ayah, right? The fact that it's so clear cut, Allah says, kana min al jinn, fafasaka an amri rabbi. And also the, now again, tafsir al-Qur'an mil-Qur'an. So you look at other places where the word jinn is used and it refers to these inferior creatures, right? Who heard the Qur'an, who are mischievous, who try and overhear the angels' conversations and who are different to angels. They're not angelic in nature, okay? Um, and Allah would not make angels who are supposed to be his messengers, his couriers, they, they execute his command, they function as his instruments. Allah can't afford to make them sinful or act by free will because they would distort his message. Um, so that seems very, very far-fetched. Um, so yeah, in other places, like we said in the Quran, it refers to inferior classes of creation. And there's a clear distinction between them and some tribal affiliation of angels. So. They go back and forth in the Fasid works. There's a lot of discussion around angel or jinn. But then the question still remains. Did the command to prostrate before Adam or bow before Adam apply to him or not? Right? Even though he was not an angel by nature, right? And why was he taken to task if he was not malaika? How could Allah kind of take him to task for that since he wasn't a Malak. Um, so the command that Allah gives to the angels when he says Malaika was a very general command to a particular space that they occupied. They, 
occupied, all the beings that occupied that glorious, sanctified realm were addressed. So it's like, for example, if, like in the Quran, when Allah addresses, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, right? He addresses, O you who believe. But then He tells those believers, don't do this, don't backbite, don't spy on each other. So clearly there's different classes of believers, right? There's also believers who profess belief, but inside they're munafiq, they're hypocrites. So it includes, Allah doesn't say, oh you who believe, apart from the pretenders, apart from this, apart from that, right? It's a very general address. So similarly, the address to the angels was a general address to anyone who occupied that space. Um, it's like addressing a group of law graduates, okay, lawyers that all work on, on one floor and there's a paralegal among them, okay, and occupies the same office space, but you don't exclude him from the general address because he occupies the same space, he does the same work, right? You say, oh, lawyers, and he's a lawyer, okay? So, and we also know that he was specifically included, not just by virtue of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. We know that he was included intentionally because in ayah number um, 12 of Surah Araf, you can turn to it if you want, I'll... So 12 of Surah A'raf, Allah asks him, He says, مَا مَنَعَكَ أَلَّا تَسْجُدَ إِذْ أَمَرْتُكَ What prevented you from bowing down when I commanded you? Right? It doesn't say when I commanded the angels. It says, what prevented you from bowing down when I commanded you? Right? So Shaitan knew very well that he was being commanded. He couldn't use the excuse that, well, I'm not an angel. And Allah knew he was commanding him, okay? And straight after that, when shaitan answers, Allah says, مَا لَكَ أَن تَتَكَبَّرَ فِيهَا Right? You have no right to be proud therein. So he uses this fiha. That means it was a sanctified space that he had to leave immediately because that space was sanctified that shaitan could no longer be in. And so... It makes sense that he was addressing all the beings who occupied a certain space, not necessarily by virtue of their nature, right? So him addressing the malaika was because the realm was a malaiki realm, not because he was excluding someone as their nature was different and including others. Does that make sense? Um, so yeah, so ayahs 12 to 13, you can see that it's a direct address to shaitan. He's holding him to task specifically, thank you, um, and actually saying you cannot stay in this space anymore, okay? So it wasn't, the address was not to the angels by virtue of their angelic nature, but by virtue of their occupying a sanctified space. And all of them were spiritual worshipping beings of God, okay? Um, and shaitan, in spite of being a jinn, occupied that space, and so he was addressed. Okay. Um, how much time have we got? Okay, plenty. So now we're just going to recount these two stories. Um, if you do have a Quran in front of you, that would be great. If not, it's fine. Um, so these are the verses that there's about six or seven places that talk about Iblis's banishment from Allah's presence or from near Allah. Um, and it's important that you know we look at these two stories 
before we delve into the hows of how he manages to do what he does. Okay, so the story goes, and and this is this is the bare bones of it. But between the ayat, there's slight differences in the wording. So, for example, where he said, where Allah says he created Adam from clay. In one place it says clay, like baked clay. In another place it's wet clay. In another place it's clay that makes a sound. Okay, somewhere else is earth. So it's a different wording for the same thing, okay? With his own two hands. So Allah created Adam from clay, dry clay, mud, aging mud, with his own hands, and breathed into him of his own spirit, okay? Um, so he says, Halaqa Adam and وَنَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِي Okay, I blew into him of my own spirit. In one of these, in Surah Baqarah, he talks about teaching Adam the names. So there's this whole kind of section there about how he taught Adam the names, you know, and we're not going to go into that. The scope of the discussion of what the names meant is massive again. You know, what they were the names of, and then Adam, he tells the angels first, tell them the names, and the angels say, oh, we don't know what the names are. So Adam teaches them the names, right? And the angels are amazed. So he. The first time Allah cursed Adam from yes. earth with his own two hands. Mm -hmm. Allah doesn't have hands. Yeah. So, so, so when it took, whenever there's reference to uh, there's reference to Allah's face, there's reference to Allah's hands in the Quran, um, and whenever there's reference to any kind of seemingly human qualities, they're known as anthropomorphic verses, and we always kind of regard them as referring to Allah's power or Allah's creativity or Allah's, um, they say Allah's countenance or his mercy, for example, and things like that. Because Allah talks to us in ways by which we understand because our hands make things, right? So it's just for us to understand, but not that Allah has hands, yeah? Yeah, so there's many things like that. Um, where Allah may make reference even to things in paradise that we could only comprehend if it's spoken to us in our language by, by things that we understand, yeah, but not necessarily that. So we, we consider Allah too sublime to have any, any relation to human beings at all. Um, so he teaches him the names. And then he commands the angels to prostrate or bow down before him. So we're going to, next week, inshallah, we'll look at the nature of this bowing down or the nature of this prostration that shaitan found so, so difficult to do. Um, so he tells them, and the angels at this point also, especially in Surah Baqarah, protest when Allah tells them actually, before Allah, before he creates Adam, he tells them he's going to put this creature on earth as a khalifa, right? And the angels, I wouldn't say they protest, but they ask, are you going to call, create someone who's going to cause bloodshed and corruption? Okay, so again, there's a lot of discussion. Did the angels have prior knowledge? Had they seen something happen before where they knew that, you know, um, that this human is capable of that? How could they ask such a thing? All of that. Again, we're not going to go into that. Um, so he commands the angels, and the angels, all, all of them, bow down except Iblis. Right? He refused. There's many places Allah says, um, he refused to be among the Sajideen to do sajda. 
he refuses and, and Allah asks him for his reason, doesn't banish him straight away. Allah asks him, why did you refuse? Right? He gives him space to express himself. And shaitan gives his reasons and then Allah banishes him. Allah says, you're outcast. And many, many different wordings here again. Okay, some places it says rajim, outcast. Another place it says madhura. Another place it says madmuma. Another place it says minasagirin. Right, lots of wordings to show he's humiliated, outcast, banished from Allah's grace. Um, and at that point, Iblis turns around and asks for respite. Okay, so respite means that he asks Allah, don't punish me just yet. Okay, just give me time. Just give me some time and give me some space to do what? To lead Adam and his progeny astray. Okay, um, so he wants respite um, to be able to test them, destroy them, um, seduce them, misguide them, all of that. To see who's actually going to be your true servants. Okay, let's see. And he tells Allah that you're going to find very few of them grateful. Okay, so that's his main thing. There's not a lot of them are going to be grateful to you. The way you think, God, that these creatures are going to be these amazing khulafa of yours, they're not going to be that. Okay, so he wants to prove Allah wrong. Iblis's request is granted with the understanding that he cannot force the upright or sincere people to sin. Okay, so Iblis has this understanding that he has absolutely no authority over any of us and he can merely invite us but not coerce us. And yet he manages to make Adam and Hawa do the exact opposite of what they were not told not to do. Right? So there's, it makes us wonder, right? He has no authority and yet how did he manage to make them slip? Okay? Maybe they didn't know, maybe they weren't told. So we look at the story of the seduction of Adam, okay, shaitan's ensnarement of Adam and his banishment from, and Adam's banishment from the garden. So there's three main places, Surah Baqarah, Surah A'raf, and Surah Taha, where this is mentioned. Um, what's not mentioned in the Quran, and this is very important to, to remember because sometimes we have, we know of the biblical account, right? We don't know what's, what's not in the Quran. So firstly, the Qur'an does not mention Hawa as being an instigator. Nowhere in the Qur'an does it say that Eve you know, gave Adam the apple, or it was her idea, or she's the one who first went to the tree. Nowhere. The Qur'an uses the jewel, right? There's a, in, in Arabic there's a singular, there's a jewel and there's a plural. So it uses the jewel form everywhere when it refers to their presence in the garden. They both approached the tree, they were both in there, they, shaitan led them both astray. There's never a time when it's just Hawa doing something. Okay, so that's firstly. Also, she's not mentioned by name. Okay, so we know her name was Hawa only from a hadith. In the Quran, she's only mentioned as his zoja, okay, Adam's spouse, not as Eve. There's no mention of the type of tree, so we don't actually know whether it's an apple, you know, that, that he took a bite, bite out of. Um, that's the seduction of all men today, Apple. Um, but, so there's no mention of that. It's on, they say, a hadith say it was either a grapevine or it was a fig tree 
or that it was some kind of grain plant. Okay, so they don't mention, it doesn't mention what type of tree. Um, it doesn't mention a serpent. So there's no snake in our story. Um, but it comes up in a hadith and it comes up in folklore, again, that might have been in, in, infiltrated our hadith from Israeliyat. Um, so there's a whole discussion in Tabrisi's work about how, if shaitan had been banished, how did he manage to whisper to them? Like, how did he gain access to them if he'd been banished? So they talk about, for example, there's all these theories that he whispered from outside the gates, right? Or some say he managed to enter the, a, a snake's mouth that was in that garden. Some say he, the snake was his wife. Some say that he managed to enter a peacock that was in the garden. There's all sorts of, or he, oh, some even say he managed to get through like the bars of the, of the gates of heaven. All sorts of theories. Anyway, it doesn't, it doesn't mention how he managed to whisper, but he did. Okay. Um, and it doesn't mention what Eve was created from either. Okay. So there's no mention in the Quran of leftover clay. There's no mention of Adam's left rib. Um, no, nothing like that. Okay, so we don't know what exactly she was created from, but we know that she was there. Um, and there's also no mention of what, where this garden was. Okay, again, lots of debate about it. Was it the garden of rewards, like Jannah that's kept for us, paradise? Or was it an earthly garden? Okay, couldn't have, some say it couldn't have been earthly because they're told to go to earth. And there's this descent kind of thing. They're told to get down and go to earth in the language. Okay, so some say it was in a realm between, between earth and the other realm where it was just a matter of time before they came down. Um, so there's, there's no mention of that, okay? And you'll find in the Quran that what the Quran chooses to omit is for very good reason because it wants us to focus on something else, okay? So we're going to see where the Quran's focus lies. It's not on these kind of details, which philosophers and and scholars get so caught up about, it's in the finer details of how shaitan managed to get them to slip. Okay, so that's going to be really important to our discussion. So basically, after Adam's creation, Allah places them in this garden. And he tells them what kind of garden. So he says, in this garden, you're not going to feel heat, you're not going to feel cold, you're not going to feel hunger, you're not going to feel thirst, any kind of physical discomfort. So all your needs are met. You're not going to feel anything unpleasant, okay? And he says he's going to provide for them abundantly. And he tells them to just eat and drink as they please, okay? Lush garden, loads of fruits everywhere. So much for them to eat. And he says only one tree I don't want you to eat from or approach. Don't go near it, okay? Um, and he tells them why as well. He says, lest you wrong yourselves, okay? So they know that by them approaching this tree, they're going to wrong themselves. It's not even a question of, do not disobey me, my creatures. It's, you will wrong yourselves. Okay, so they know that as well. He warns them about Iblis. He tells them, Iblis is your manifest enemy. Okay, he tells them, don't listen to him. And yet Iblis comes and he whispers to them. And he makes them several false promises to eat from it, which we will analyze in the coming weeks. And as soon as they eat from the tree, their shame is exposed to them. Okay, and that's what the Quran says. 
they hurry to cover themselves with the leaves of Jannah as clothing. And then Allah reproaches them, okay, and tells them off for not listening to him. They seek forgiveness. Allah accepts their forgiveness, but sends them down to earth and says, you can't live here anymore. You have to go down to earth. Um, so that's basically the bare bones of the story, pieced together from all these ayat. So our aim over the next few weeks is going to be to discover how did he manage to get them to eat from the tree and how does he manage to do the same with us? So what are the skills and strategies that he uses? And we'll do that using the language. Um, and what is his, what is the basis of his psychology? How does he think? And how does he infect us to think the same way as him? Okay, so that's, that's what we're going to look at. Um, so next week, inshallah, we'll look at the causes of his rebellion. We'll look at the nature of the sajda that he was asked to do. Um, his reasoning behind his refusal. How does he justify it? And various other things that we'll go into, inshallah. Support Al Mahadi Institute. Visit almahadi.edu.